ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Dean Laws is a marathon runner with Parkinson's disease. Dean was in his 50s when he was given the diagnosis. It was a horrible shock because Dean had led a very active life all his life. His family had been involved in every aspect of the local soccer club and he'd been a lifeguard at his local swimming pool where he works today as a gardener. Dean had always seen himself as the kind of guy who looks after other people. So he wasn't used to the idea that other people would look after him. But his family, his group of friends and his physio rallied round to help him exercise and fight off the symptoms. And that's when Dean got an insane idea in his head. An idea that he would attempt something he'd never tried before his diagnosis. To join one of the world's biggest marathons. But the universe had other plans for him. Hello, Dean. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. Tell me about where you grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Leichhardt, um, just at the end of Annandale, um, just down from the Vic Hotel, if anyone knows the area, in John Street. It was a uh, little quiet street because there was factories down one end and just only a few houses up the other end. So there was not much traffic went through the street at all. So, so it would have been a working-class district in those days, full of a, a lot of Italian migrants as well? Yeah, yeah, a lot of Italian migrants, mainly fishermen, which is who I ended up marrying, uh, the daughter of a fisherman in Leichhardt. So uh, it was an interesting time back then. What do you remember of the family home when you were a kid? It was a weatherboard house, two-bedroom house that we converted into three bedrooms. We smashed down a wall because I got three other brothers. There's four boys in my family, so uh, we were a bit cramped. So we smashed down one of the walls and made a bedroom for my parents and um, we went two on two in the other two bedrooms. What was street sport like street, for you as a kid? Street sport was a bit wild when we were kids. It was always <laughs> it was always it was always two on two and we had four boys in the family. Uh, you can imagine how um, wild it got. And we used to um, get our cricket stumps and in those days they had the little metal Spikes on the bottom. Right, on the tips of the stumps. Yes, yes, yeah. on the tips of the stumps. We used to bang them in the asphalt in the middle of the street <laughs> because the asphalt wasn't like it was now. It's, it was a bit soft back then. And on a hot summer's day, we'd bang three stumps at each end into the street and uh, we'd play with a cricket ball and a bat in the street. And, uh, Are you bro- and your mates the reason why the asphalt's totally buggered in that well, it was area? My brothers. It wasn't me mates, it was my brothers, yeah. Um, the cars would just go around. They didn't care that we were playing cricket. If there was a car come, they just go around and we just keep playing. And uh, I remember this house next to mine, it was right in line with my brother's hook shot. And uh, I think every single time we played, which might have been a couple of times a week, he'd smash the window next door. <laughs> so my father had panes of glass already made up from Jerry's glass down the, down the corner of the street, already made up. And they were the days where you put putty you could just put putty in the, to hold the glass in. So he'd just come out when we smashed it, put a pane in. The, the owner didn't even know and just put the putty back in and that was it. We continued the game. My friend Steve Kinane, who's now the ABC's Europe correspondent, yeah. he's a real connoisseur of kids' street cricket. He played it all the time as a kid. <laughs> and he said there's special rules, like if the dog catches it, you're out. You know, that That's kind right. of thing. Did yeah, you have yeah, rules yeah. like that? So- oh, we had, we, had, we had plenty of rules like that. Um, <laughs> you could, you, if you caught it on the full one-handed... You got, you got, uh, you couldn't play 
the next day. The, the, the batter couldn't play the next day. How come? Oh, because it was a bad shot. If someone can catch a cricket ball in the street one-handed, you've hit a woeful shot. Let's face it. <laughs> was it a happy family? Did you get along well as a bunch of people? Oh, yeah, we got along really well. Um, my father had a great work-life balance. He was just a normal worker. Started off in the iron foundry in Annandale and then uh, went on to um, Columbia Pencils, um, Aselti Dymo, who make the folders and stuff like that for businesses. So he was starting work at seven, just a factory worker, starting work at seven, home at three. So he spent a lot of the afternoons with us, and my mum was home as well. So we had a really happy, happy upbringing in Leichhardt there. Were they a happy couple, the two of them, your mum and dad? They were. They were very happy. They they were inseparable. Whenever you've seen uh, Vincent Val, their name was, uh, the two Vs. Um, Vincent Val. Vincent Val Laws, yeah. yeah. And I'm, my, my name's Dean Vincent, so I was named after my father and my middle name. Um, and they were inseparable. Wherever she was, he was. Wherever he was, she was. And even at the soccer all those years, uh, he was out um, manning the ground and my mum was running the canteen. So, and that was Saturday and Sunday all day. So, uh, yeah. so the family was totally invested in this local soccer club. Oh, there. Canterbury Junior Soccer Club, yeah, totally invested at Lees Park there, their home ground behind Canterbury Racecourse. My father was the president for a long time. I think he spent 50 years serving. He ended up getting um, put into the New South Wales Soccer Hall of Fame for his service to soccer in this state. So he was totally invested uh, in that club. Uh, we used to get out there on a Saturday and a Sunday morning all weekend at about 7 o'clock to put up the nets, set up the ground. Um, and we are all there because no one could stay at home because the, both of the parents were there and we were young. And we were there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, pulling down the nets. Same thing on the Sunday. My mum would be running the canteen all day. And I remember vividly on uh, winter's morning, summer's winter mornings, the frost was on the grass and you'd be the first one to step on the ground and you'd hear the, gra- the grass crackling under your feet because you're the first one on the ground to put the nets up. Yeah, so that was our whole weekends during winter. Did you always feel like going to the soccer? We loved it. Yeah. We loved it. Me and my brothers absolutely loved it. What was expected of you growing up? Did your dad and mum tell you you had to do this or had to do that or they wanted this or wanted that for you? No, not really, not really. Um, none of us ever went to university. They just wanted us to be happy. You know, they just wanted us to do what we wanted to do, you know, to enjoy life, really. So you continued with the soccer into your early 20s and your dad was the coach of this soccer team? Yes, he was. He coached a few teams that I played in uh, growing up at Canterbury, coached a few I didn't play in. Every year he'd coach the team. As, as I said, he was the president for a long, long time. And they established the Premier League and um, our team was... We'd already played together before that for a few years, so we had a good combination. I always played in the defence. And the first six years of that competition, we won all six years. Um, Never been done before. The closest they've come, I think, is probably two years, I think, at the moment, straight. So we won six years straight. The first three years without a loss. I think that was simply because my father had a very simple philosophy to soccer that I don't think would work these days, but... Back then, what, win at all costs, right? Win at all costs, right? You're exactly right. You're exactly and, and, right. And how fierce was he with that? Well, he he, he didn't give an inch. Uh, my father was a very small man, but he walked into the room and he sort of commanded the presence of the room, you know, because he had that much knowledge about the game. Uh, it was unbelievable, and he used to go to every player before the match. 
every single player before the match in the dressing rooms and give them their instructions for the game. Was he tougher on you, you being his son, than the uh, other players? He was in the in the aspect that he put me. I always played in the defence. I always played left back. No one in the team could uh, kick left foot, so I got the left back job. So you get you get all the blame if something goes wrong, and you don't get the glory as a striker. Then is that well? What it that's is? right. Well, you that's know. right. Well, his idea was for nothing to go wrong. He wouldn't entertain something going wrong. He had his plan for the match. My plan was the same. The, what he told me before the match, every game was the same. Don't let him through. Don't let him through. Did he ever ask you to push the rules pretty hard, too hard? We, we, we stretched and broke the rules on several occasions simply because of his, his simple plan. Don't let him through at all costs, legally or illegally. Back in those days, it was a rough game. It's not, it's not like today. It was a rough game. And, and as I said before, those tactics wouldn't, wouldn't wash these days. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't these days coach a team like that either. Now, what did he ask you to do? Oh, well, you just stop the players getting through. Right. Uh, by any means. And um, on quite a few occasions, I got send-offs and yellow cards and all sorts of things. So it was a, it was a win-at-all-cost mentality, but it was successful. And one of the things I remember him saying is, um, the only way not to get hurt is to go in harder than the other guys. The guy who goes in the hardest doesn't get hurt. And I never got a major injury playing that whole time. So uh, it obviously worked. Um, and I think it's set me up for what I face now and in the future. Tell me about the day he asked you to deliberately break the rules by kicking it into the river. How did that oh, happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was at least Park at our home ground. We were, and it was just a normal competition match. We were about... I don't know, 15 minutes towards the end. We're up 1-0. Um, I can't remember the team we were playing. And he comes, I played left back, so I was on that side where the coaches were standing. He come over to me and said, if the ball comes, you oik it in the river. That's the way he put it. He said, oik it. That was what he used to say. I said, you know, that's illegal. You know, that's professional foul. And he goes, yeah, just oik it in the river. Nice and calm, you know, no, no, no fanfare. So the ball's come to me. It was on the ground. I've just got under it and there was no fence along the uh, Cooks, Cooks River it was. There was no fence along the Cooks River those days. It was all mud and it's not uh, water like it, it is now. So I've gave it a nice good crack and uh, it's just rolled along the ground and just plop over the edge into the canal. <laughs> Ref come up and I said, listen, don't do that again, Dean. We, we quite often knew the referees in those days because the competition wasn't a big competition. So we knew a lot of the referees and the players we were playing against. So a couple of minutes went by. We were still up 1-0 because his theory, his theory was playing out. The, our, our forward scored a goal. I didn't let anything through, uh, same as my counterpart on the other side. He's come up the sideline again with about, you know, maybe 10 minutes to go this time. He said, uh, Dean, yes, Dad. I knew what he was going to say. Oikin in the river. Oikin in the river. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this time it's it's come up to me, it's come to me on the volley and I uh, would uh, I didn't like that because I, I he tells me I wasn't the best player amongst the four of us on on his deathbed he 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 told me I was probably the least talented kicker of the ball right which was great to hear you know yeah on the after, deathbed after all these years I had no comeback because he he was there he was on his last last legs so so there's nothing thanks much for, thanks for sharing that dad thanks for that well I brought up I brought up who was the best player so right. you know it was oh, my fault well, in the first place anyway right. back to the story <laughs> he he came up to the sideline and said Dean oiking in the river <laughs> so um 
the ball's come to be on the volley and I thought, oh, am I going to – all right. So I've had a crack at it and she goes up in the air and it goes way up in the air and it goes in the river on the full. It was the best kick I've done all year, I thought, uh, and that was the one that put it in the river. Uh, so the referee comes up to me, yellow card, all right, which is a caution. All right? And you can only get yellow, one yellow card in a match and then you're off. Um, five minutes to go and um, we're still in the same position, one nil up. I was hoping he wouldn't come to the sideline. But uh, with five minutes to go, and it, it wasn't even a match that meant anything. I mean, we were winning the competition clearly. And what do you think he said to me, Richard? Did he say, hoik it in the river, Dean? That's exactly what he said to me, Richard. Hoik it in the river. And I'm just praying to God that oh. the ball did not come to me. Go to the right side. I'm just praying that it didn't go to me. But it did. It come over the top. And I've just swung at it and I've just... I even surpassed the previous kick. <laughs> You're getting better at hooking it in the river. I'm getting better in hooking right. it in the river, and right. it's it's gone in the canal. Yeah. And the referees come up with a red card with five minutes to go, and I'm off. And uh, I walk off the field towards him. I'm looking at him, and as I walk off, he pats me on the backside, says, "Good job, son." <laughs> We won the match. I got suspended for, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so. So you were the uh, cannon fodder for that victory. In other for that words. victory. But, I mean, you know, I mean, mm. that's the way it was. He's the most winning coach in the Canterbury district ever. So it worked. So you got married to your wife, Dominica, the, the fisherman's yep. daughter, as you, as you say. Yeah, Mima. Mima. Had three kids. Yes. Got work at Leichhardt Pool as yep. a lifeguard. Yeah. Did you keep pretty active into middle age? Oh, well, after soccer, at 26, I I retired because um, I was starting a family and our family was young. And so I decided to give it away and I started doing triathlons. So I've done triathlons for about uh, 10 years. It's a gruelling sport. Indeed. <laughs> individual, completely different to soccer. So you remain very, very fit and healthy. Yeah. What was the first sign you noticed of Parkinson's? Yeah, 2013. New Year's Day, uh, I, I remember it clear. We were up the coast. I think it was Budgie Boy. Uh, we were up the coast uh, on a holiday. New Year's Day, I went for a run, which I always did. And I come back from that run and I sat on the back porch of this place we rented from friends. And I remember the, the breeze was blowing in my face. It was a hot, hot morning, but the breeze was blowing off the river there. And um, I had a tremor in my right hand, just a slight tremor. And it was really unusual because I've been super healthy. I'm I, I've never drank my whole life. I've never even had a puff of a cigarette and I've exercised since I was four years old. So the tremor in the right hand, just just a slight tremor. And I said, I sat there for about an hour and I said to my wife when she come out from inside, she asked me, did I want some breakfast or something? I said, I've got this tremor in my hand and it's really, it's really unusual, you know. It's not, I thought I might have hit my funny bone or something. You now you do that and it and tingles a bit, but I, I never remember doing that. So I said, oh, I think I'll just keep an eye on this. This just doesn't feel good. I, right from the start, I knew it didn't feel good. And so I, I let, it, let it go for a while and um, for a couple of weeks, turned into a month or so, and it just didn't go away. And I went down to my local GP down the street and got her to check it out. So yeah. then you got referred to a specialist. Well, they, she, my local GP uh, rang up a friend of hers that she went to uni with who just happened to be a neurologist. 
she got me an appointment the next day and I said, oh, boy, <laughs> that's not good. That's because not good when they're that quick, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah because they're, these guys are booked out, or girls are booked out uh, six months in advance. Uh, and my GP said, look, don't jump to conclusions. And I'm not the type of person that worries about stuff anyway. So it just didn't sound sound right that I can get an appointment. The next day. So I went there. The neurologist checked me out and um, she wasn't going to commit to anything on the first examination, obviously. So I ended up going for a raft of uh, tests over the next two or three months. And then they dropped the diagnosis on you. Well, I pretty much knew by yeah. that time, by the doc- what the doctors were saying, the, the examination doctors were saying that yeah. what it was, but you're still, you're still not ready for a diagnosis like that. And what happened? Well, how did you react when you were Oh, look, it hit me like a lead balloon, you know. Um, I thought I'd been run over by a train at the time. And, you know, in the movies sometimes you uh, – the audio goes and the person's sort of within themselves and there's muffled noise around like them. Like in Saving Private Ryan when they're on the beach. Yes, yes and right. you can't really hear the noise, yeah. but you know it's there. Yeah. That's what it was. It was sort of like a, a blur. I'm glad my wife was listening to everything because I only got half of what she was saying and I was a little bit upset. I, I, I admit to shedding a tear <laughs> at that stage uh, in, in the office of the, the neurologist. Obviously, it's a terrible thing to do. Did it Did it threaten your sense of the kind of man you are, the well, kind of person you are? Well, my whole life was physicality. That was my whole life. I mean, I went from soccer. Uh, I had, there's four boys in the family. I went from soccer to triathlons to, to fun runs, city to surf. I'd done about 15 city to surfs or whatever. And when anyone wanted something done that couldn't be done or they wanted a problem solved or, you know, I'd be the one to jump in. So did uh, you feel like you were the problem now rather than the problem solver? Is well, that what it was? Well, this thing was uh, attacking my physicality, the yeah. exact thing that I thought defined me. So, you know, we went home after that diagnosis and my girls, uh, my two girls that we were working age, of course, asked us to ring them when we were on the way home. And uh, they, they almost beat us home. They were, they were there about like 30 seconds after we got home. My wife told them what had happened and um, we explained it a bit more and they said, don't worry, Dad, um, we'll look after you. Uh, it didn't sit well with me. It didn't sit well with me because I'm the one looking after them. You know, that was me. You know, uh, as I said, if someone wanted something done or some help, you know, I was there. That was me. Not, not, I didn't want anyone looking after me. So um, I went into my bedroom after that and I just sat there for about an hour on the side of the bed just sort of contemplating what the future held. For me. Could your doctors point to any possible causes for the Parkinson's? Well, it's the same. Um, Back then there was no such thing as hereditary and it's not in my family at all. Um, But I know families that have had multiple cases, but they still don't know whether it's actually hereditary or not. Um, But the two things they do think is um, head trauma and exposure to chemicals. Head trauma. Yeah. So you've been heading a lot of soccer balls through your heading life. Heading a you? lot of soccer balls. And back in those days, they were leather, not synthetic like they are now. They were real leather uh, stitched together. These days, if you get a bit of a rain during the week, the, the game's called off. Back then, they never called games off. We used to play in some atrocious weather. And um, I headed the ball a lot. But, but And then, also the pool industry. I right, worked, right. You know, so you're working as a lifeguard and yeah. that chemical exposure might have done, yeah. you know, might have exacerbated yeah, but even, it. Even in the early days, there was no, there was no uh, thought about chemical exposure because um, we used to mix up, we used to have a, 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 one of those 
a metal above ground pools in our backyard. Uh, that we used to jump off the roof of the house into. <laughs> yeah, we had one of those, and I think it was more chlorine than water. In, in... Exactly, exactly. And we used to mix up the chemicals for the cartridge filter by hand, you know. Yeah. No one knew anything about that mm. in those, so it could have very well have been that, but you don't know. And mm. um, I, I'm not really interested in why. I, I'm, the researchers are for the future, which is great, but I'm more uh, interested in... Well, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. I, I look forward. I never look back. So how did you go on the medication they gave you to begin with? Oh, look, it's up and down. It's, it's, I think with Parkinson's medication, it's a trial and error basis. Uh, it was then and it's, I'm sure it still is now. Um, we tried a whole lot of things for the first four years or so. Uh, for the first four years, I, I stopped running. I sort of lost a bit of my mojo, if you might put it like that. That's, not, that's the way my wife puts it. <laughs> and I stopped. Why, why do you think you stopped running? Oh, look, I just didn't know where I was heading. At that stage, I was lost. I, I didn't know where I was heading. Uh, the doctors were helping with medication. It was working to an extent, but it only goes so far. It had helped. The, the medications these days are dopamine replacements, so they help with the tremor. Yeah, and what are the side effects, though? Well, I, I don't know if they're side effects or they're Parkinson's symptoms. Oh. It's hard to tell. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to tell uh, whether, whether we get side effects or they're the symptoms of Parkinson's right. uh, in, the, in the first place. Well, did it make you think thinking a bit foggier? Uh, it makes you thinking a bit yeah. foggier. You forget yeah. things. How about your mood? Does it affect your uh, it, mood? It, 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 there's, there's a high incidence of depression in people oh. with Parkinson's, high incidence of dementia. My voice started to get softer. I started to choke on food. I was uh, cramping badly. My muscles were cramping badly. I'd get out of bed in the morning and because my feet hadn't been on the ground all night, if I put them straight onto the ground getting out of bed, they'd be shooting pains up my legs because the messages from the brain hadn't got to the feet yet that the muscles were going to start working. So there's all sorts of things uh, that that can come up. This is the moment when an elite group of highly talented men stepped in to come into your assistance. A group of men known as the Bongusto Boys. Please explain who the Bongusto Boys are, Dan. Sorry I, I snickered then when, uh, when you said elite group of men, but nah, they're good blokes. These Bo- are your mates, right? These are my mates. These yeah. are 12 really good mates that I've known most of them for 40 years or so. We were based at Liberty Hill Christian Centre, which is at Chalora. Um, it wasn't known, uh, it's changed names in the last 20 years, but, um, but I've, been, I've been going there for 40 years um, and the Bongusto boys come out of that group. Now, Bongusto is Italian for good taste, isn't good it? Good taste, because it was an Italian-based right. church. Yeah. Uh, and some of the people that actually built the original church with their own hands are still in the church today. So um, so you like a nice bit of food and a nice bit of wine to go with that? Well, my wife's Italian. What do, right. what do, she's Sicilian. What do, right. what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I eat way too much, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. But the Bongusto boys, um, they decided to form a group of wine connoisseurs, Richard, and um, I don't drink. And you I, became designated driver? I I'm became just designated driver. Right, great. Uh, and I'm not, a, that, I'm not a great driver in the first place, so, you know. But, um, but no one ever got drunk because they'd bring – we'd go to wineries and we have tastings and they'd bring their own wines. Everyone would bring a first and a second wine over the weekend. It went over a long weekend, right? 
Uh, everyone would bring a first and a second wine, but they'd share the wine between 12 guys, a bottle of wine. So no one ever got, you know, it's only a, like a splash in the bottom of your glass. I've know? never seen a drunken Italian in my life. The only oh. t- the only drunks I've ever seen in Italy are British tourists. Yeah, that's And the right. Australians, of course. I, you're right yeah. there. I, I've, never, I've never seen a drunken Italian either. But So um, these were really long-standing, old, old yes, friends of yours. Yes, you, yes. Long-standing, yes. good friends. Yes, and, yeah. we, and, we, and, the, and 12 of them, and we... And we, we'd be away for the weekend and it was a weekend where you could share whatever you wanted to share, no recriminations, no one gets upset about anyone, you can say whatever you want. And um, I think that's really good for, for us blokes, really. And um, There's a lot of laughter and forgiveness. A lot then. of laughter, a lot of forgiveness, yeah. which, which, which is a good philosophy to have. And we're in Mudgee that weekend. And this is one of your Bon Gusto boys weekends. Weekends, yes. Right. Uh, it, was a, it was a July... Um, 2019, I believe, in Mudgee, and we're sitting around the table, the final table, like the uh, Twelve Apostles or something, uh, and uh, and a few guys had noticed something over that weekend, and Glenn said to me, "What's wrong, Dean?" That was the time where I had well, what I call the tipping point. It was the time where I hadn't started the real exercise yet, and I thought I could go either way. I could either not do it, or I could go all in and do it. And I could tip either way. I could let Parkinson's take me, or I could fight it. And I was at that, that decision stage and Glenn said, uh, what's wrong, Dean? And I said, we're at the table, we're eating. And I said, oh, mate. And I explained to him the tipping point that I just explained to you. And he said, well, why don't we all get together and start doing something together besides this, some exercise and stuff like that. I don't know what we'll do. But he said, we'll just create a team of sorts. And he said, why don't we call it the Dean team? So that, that, was, that was his idea. And then we let that go for a little bit uh, until I ended up at uh, Advanced Rehab Centre uh, getting the rehab I needed and I started to get stronger and, and fitter. My mind went to running again for the first time in about four or five years and that's when I had, I had the idea of uh, competing in the 2021 Sydney Marathon. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. This is when we get into your extraordinary neurological physiotherapist, Lisa Meng. Tell me a bit about her. Uh, well, Lisa Meng, it started with a program at Advanced Rehab Centre that Mel, the CEO there, designed herself called PD Warrior, which um, is a series of uh, exercises that aided retraining the brain. It's called neuroplasticity. Yeah, I've talked with a lot of guests about yeah. neuroplastic yeah, theory well, on the it, show. it yeah. works. It works. I'm, I'm right. living proof that it works. This is the idea that you can actually create new pathways. neural pathways yes, in your head exactly. that didn't exist before, then they sort of, they, they kind of a Bypass. workaround to what's yeah, not working. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I started off with that program and then I moved on because because the word marathon come up, uh, you know, in the, in the <laughs> really? Bon Gusto boys yeah. uh, thinking and, and my thinking as well. So, so when you're doing this kind of therapy and you're becoming more physical again, mm. what were you noticing about your symptoms as you became more physical again? Well, then? the symptoms were dropping off. 
I identified early seven symptoms before I started the exercise. And the more I exercise and hard exercise, not just a stroll in the park, I'm talking really, really hard exercise, pushing uh, good good sets of weights in the gym and uh, going for 10, 12, 15K runs and stuff like that. So that's, that, that's, that's hard exercise. And I found that my symptoms were starting to drop off. The cramping, there's a, there's a thing called uh, freezing where you can't actually take that first step. Uh, that was happening a little bit, not, not, not a lot. That went, uh, the cramping went, uh, the muscle soreness and stiffness went. I'm getting more uh, serotonin in the brain too uh, and you're probably feeling a bit happier too. Yeah, getting, yeah, guessing. and the mood, the yeah. mood increased, uh, mood was much better uh, and I was just feeling much fitter and fitter all the time. You see, I've got, I got to, like, you know, I know you were diagnosed like 10 years ago, yeah. but I never guess you had Parkinson's disease. I, you know, I, have I caught you on a good day or are you like this most days? No, this is a normal day. I talk too much normally. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, I actually got stopped in the gym at uh, Advanced Rehab Centre one day and one of the other guys, because they only do neurological disorders there, that's all they do, um, and uh, he said to me, he said, what's wrong with you? Why are you here? I said, well, I've got Parkinson's. He goes, no, you haven't. I said, I have. <laughs> I've got the papers to prove it. <laughs> so, Australians uh, are like that. They think yeah. they know better that you, you better than you think you know yourself. Yeah, for it's sure. Funny. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I, t- I told them that uh, I was planning on doing a marathon. Is what the, the was, boys. So, was that your idea or was that the boys' idea? Um, well, no, it was my idea, but the Dean team uh, was the boys'. So you thought you'd compete in the 2021 Sydney Marathon. Wow, that's a big deal, that one, Dean. It's a big deal. How did your physio help you prepare to enter that marathon? Well, they changed my uh, physio that was doing the PD Warrior with me. Then they hooked me up with a exercise physiologist, an EP, Lisa Meng. Lisa is just a, a small, slight girl, um, but she's, she's tough. <laughs> and she's fit. <laughs> and she was all in too. Uh, she she loved the idea of someone with Parkinson's being able to run a marathon. But on our first session, I sat down with her for about 10 or 15 minutes explaining what I wanted. And she said, yeah, no worries. We can we can do that. We can do that. I, I'm, in, I'm in it with you. She said, but I need to see how you run. And I said, oh, all right. And I was in some workout gear at the time, so there was no problem. So we went out side the center and she, she ran with me yeah. she she said uh just keep on my left shoulder and i'll set the pace and we'll see how you go so that's what i'd done i stayed on her left shoulder it wasn't a, it wasn't a cracking pace or anything but i've come back after three kilometers and i've collapsed on the grass out the front and i was just i've looked I nearly died that day, I think. But <laughs> she goes, "Oh yeah, well, you know, that's a start." <laughs> Just a you know, matter of fact, you know. And I thought oh, I was gasping for breath on my hands and knees. And she said, "Yeah, that's a start. You know, we can go. We can work with that." And uh, that that started a uh, a now almost two year relationship uh, with Lisa and uh, my health. So you started training to run yes. the the Sydney Marathon. Yep, and then. COVID-19 arrived. Yes. What did that mean for you in the marathon? Well, that meant that uh, we'd been training for mm, the best part of a year by that stage. Yes, it was maybe March, April, May or something of 21 and we'd already been training for something like a year. And um, and your symptoms had been abating all the this time? symptoms had been abating all right. the time. I was getting quicker. And at that stage, around May, I was running 21 kilometres at a time in training. 
maybe once every two or three weeks I'd run the 21 and I'd be doing shorter distances. She had a whole plan set out for me um, in advance. So I actually think I was fitter than I was when I was playing soccer. To tell the truth, cardiovascular-wise, I was fitter than, than in, my, in, my, in my 26-year-old days, I think. And is Lisa still running alongside you for part of this training? Yes, yes, she is, she is. And so we get to about three weeks before the marathon. As the go, and I knew, knew something was going on because I was uh, setting up some stuff with the organiser of the marathon to get some video footage of me coming across the line and stuff like that. And she said, listen, Dean, I'm not saying anything now, but expect the worst, you know. And about three weeks before the marathon day, which was the 19th of September, 2021, they called it off and she rang me up and said, it's off, Dean, I'm sorry. And I, I, I was really distraught, but I sat down with Lisa a couple of days later uh, at one of my uh, gym sessions and uh, she said, what are we going to do, Dean? I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to run our own. She said, your own marathon? Yeah, we're going to run our own. Are you in? She said, I'm in. <laughs> so how did you set up your own well, marathon? Well, I went to the council because I'd already been working for the council at uh, Leichhardt Aquatic Centre, right? So I went to the council and said, can I have part of the park next to La Montage down on the bay? the function centre there, down there's a little soccer ground next to it. They said, can I have part of the park? They said, you can take the whole park if you want. So we set up a, a gazebo at the edge of the park there where the running track is that goes around the bay. Uh, it's a seven-kilometre loop around the bay there. So then the greenway goes up to Catherine Street along the tennis courts at Haberfield. So we included that section, which made it a 10.5K loop all up which works perfectly with a 42-kilometre marathon, four laps. We'd amassed a team of about 60 people by then. The Dean team was about 60 strong by then, and we had about 80 people turn up to the, to the, to the day, yeah. But there was, there, was, um, there was about five or six that done the marathon with me. There's a few that done a lap here, a lap there. My son, Vincent, done three laps, so he'd done just over 30 Ks with me without training at all. And his training was, because he smoked at the time, his training was he gave cigarettes away the following the day before. So that was his training for a 30-kilometre run. Can you set the scene for me on the day of the run? I can set the scene for you. Um, six o'clock in the morning, we had, we'd already had, we got down there at five, we, uh, me and a couple of the mates, uh, my son Vincent, we had the gazebo set up. The girls were going to come, my girls were going to come with my wife later to man the tent because we were giving out Parkinson's information to the public at the time because that's, that's, that's one of the whole pushes of the Dean team to make it, people more aware of it. We had uh, a lady called Fiona from Parkinson's New South Wales there to help with questions. So we had a whole setup, And then Lisa turned up and we took off on the run. And this was a sunny Sunday morning. She moved over to me to help me out and she was running with me at that stage when I probably about halfway through my marathon. Now, you were, what, 60 or something? Or how old were you when you, when you started to run? Any, yeah, yeah, I was 60. 60 years old? Yeah. That's a big call for someone in perfect health at That's the age right. of 60 to run a marathon. Yeah. I know you were fiercely determined. I know you had, probably yeah. had your dad's voice in your ear saying, yeah. just do it and all that. But yeah. there must have been some doubt in your mind that you would complete it? Well, um, the doubt didn't come in before the run. 
It did because I figure, and, and 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 Lisa, Lisa always said to me, "You've done the training. You've done the training. I've seen you do the training. You've got this. Just trust yourself. Trust your training. Trust your body can do it." And she joined me halfway at about twenty, twenty-five. 23, 24, 25 kilometre mark. And how were you doing at that cruising. point? You were I was cruising. cruising. Right. I was cruising, Richard. I was really, I was in autopilot. I was just at a nice steady pace. I was absolutely cruising. Were you um, having to take medication during the run? Well, I had to. I had to because the medication gets taken every uh, sort of like three hours. So the run was going to be bordering on six is what I thought I was planning for. So I was going to have to take medication before and during as well as food and water all the way along, and that's what the uh, the my uh, entourage was for. <laughs> my little granddaughter Sienna, she rode most of the the, the run with me on her bike. So um, everyone's alongside you, everyone's yeah, cheering you on, yeah. and you're cruising, and yeah. then you're not. When, and then I'm not. And then you're not. When, when did you run into trouble? I ran into trouble at 30 kilometres, and that was the mind coming in on it, because in training I didn't go past 30 kilometres. You never run the full distance on these things in training in one go. What do you mean that's when the mind came in? That's interesting. Well, what do you mean? I, I, I call it uncharted waters. Uh, I'm writing a book at the moment so and uh, there's a chapter on it. I call it uncharted waters because I'd never ran that far before. And it's like you flick a switch, all right? Is uh, it like swimming out too far or something? Is it a no, bit it's just like, swimming. Right. Like, it's like swimming where you've never swam before. Right, Is there right. sharks? Is there not yeah, sharks? Yeah. So I get to the 30-kilometre mark and all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, uh, I've never gone this far before. And the body started to hurt. Because um, running those distances and just being within yourself all that time, because I never listen to music or anything like that, you get a good grip on listening to your body. And um, What was my, going on in your body? Well, my mind started playing tricks on me saying, oh, look, your legs are hurting. You're getting a bit tired. You're starting to shuffle a bit. And all of a sudden I started to do it. My body started to, my mind started to take over my body sort of thing. And Lisa was in my ear the whole time, come on, Dean, you've got this. She was right behind me the whole time. Come on, Dean, you've got this. Was she trying to get you to stop overthinking it, do you yeah, think? Yeah, get out, of, get out of the mind right. and just trust your training uh, until my uh, brother Scott, my youngest brother Scott, joined me at um, about 35 kilometres and my son Vincent was with me on the other side of me and Lisa was right behind me. So then we had a three-prong attack there until we got up onto the bridge at Birkenhead Point, the Iron Cove Bridge to go over the bay and to come down onto the other side where our uh, finishing tent was. I got up onto that bridge and I had this almighty cramp in my right hamstring and it felt like the muscles were tearing off the bone. It was that intense. And I felt this, my body has this funny way of um, responding to this sort of thing. I felt it twice in my life before this point and both times... Uh, I blacked out. Uh, they were kidney stones. And I blacked out both times. So I get up onto the bridge and I slowed down with this cramp and I stopped and the others around me stopped. And there was about four or five people with me at that stage. And the others around me stopped and I could feel, um, I could see my, my eyesight is going blacker and blacker and blacker from the outside in, Richard. And I knew what was happening. Um, because it had happened before and I thought, oh, look, I thought, no, please, God, you know, I don't want to black out now because if I black out, the first thing they're going to do is ring an ambulance 
and that's the end of the marathon. That's the end of a year and a half's training. That's that's probably the end of the Dean team because that's the way I was thinking because my whole push was hard training, hard exercise, never give up will get you through your Parkinson's symptoms. So if I fail to do that marathon, if I don't make it, there's my whole concept of the Dean team blown out of the water. That's what I was thinking at the time anyway. But you're losing vision and but, you've but got I'm this losing severe vision cramp. And I've got a severe cramp. I'm in terrible pain and I'm thinking I'm going to black out. And Lisa grabbed my leg, physically grabbed my leg, put it up onto the side of the bridge and started stretching my hamstring out and the pain started to subside. And the vision started to come back and she didn't know that I'd, I'd black out in those occasions. She didn't know anything about that. I never told her. Um, she may still not know, but she probably does now. And my vision come back, the pain subsided a bit and we took off again. But what I didn't realise at the time that one of the girls that was running behind us was one of my daughter's best friends, Re uh, Rebecca, and um, she had rang back on her mobile to home base, said, we've got a bit of trouble here on the bridge. Um, we don't think he's going to make it. And um, I didn't know she made that phone call to home base. So um, we, um, we got off the bridge down into King George Park at Roselle there. And as I got off the bridge and came down to the flat at King George Park, there must have been 15 or 20 people waiting there that have come down from our home base about a kilometre further along they're all cheering, and they had someone had a Bluetooth speaker playing um, "Eye of the Tiger" from Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm coming down the hill, and this is playing. So you can imagine what I thought then. I, it, it really, it really buoyed me up. And this is the whole concept of the team, the community around you to lift you up when you're down. You know, that, that's the whole Dean team concept, and it works with Parkinson's, and it worked on this day. Um, I've come down, and they've all started running behind me with uh, the music blaring and that was, a, that was a black moment on that run. But we only had, when I come down into the park, we only had about three or four kilometres to go. That's all we had. And I was, I was still hurting. I was still hurting but I was still moving forward as well. Where was your wife at this point? Well, that's the thing is she, she was at home base and I was about a kilometre away from her. And I was going to have to do another couple of kilometres up the Greenway and back. So I've gone past home base and I wasn't going to look at her. Um, I wasn't going to look at her because if she saw the pain that I was in, um, she didn't deserve to feel like that. So um, I kept my, my stare just sort of forward and, and towards the ground as I ran, but I could, I could feel her eyes coming from the side. <laughs> you know, I, I knew what she'd be thinking. Uh, I knew she'd be upset, but if I looked up, I, I would have lost it as well at that time. And I don't know if I would, I could have made it if uh, she looked up and seen me in pain. So I just, I didn't look at her at all, and I just kept running. I ran straight past her without looking. I, I still, I, I didn't ask her afterwards what she felt at that stage. I've never, I haven't asked her since. But um, anyway, we went past her, and then we get onto the greenway, and it was getting towards. Um, it was about eleven o'clock on that Sunday, and it was a beautiful Sunday. It was getting hot. And um, I get onto the greenway, the little path there, and I had about a kilometre up and a kilometre back to the, to the home base to do. And there was, a, there was hundreds of people on the greenway having picnics and stuff like that, all coming to the side of the path and cheering. Some I knew, some I didn't, knew, uh, didn't know. Um, 
and some knew what were going was obviously what was going on and some didn't but there, there was an entourage of 20 people or so with me at the front and my brother Scott and Vincent on the side and Lisa right behind me still saying Dean you've got this you've got this you know and um these people are coming to the side of the path, all cheering. Then the music changed to We Are The Champions by Queen at that stage. So, so they're playing my favourite playlist. So these people were coming to the side of the path, cheering me along. I, had, I got up to the end and I was slowing down and slowing down. Uh, I turned around, I come back, and um, they were still cheering, still on the path, and there was hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. And what state are you in at this point? Oh, look, I was I was shuffling at this stage. I was shuffling. There's there's no other doubt about it. It's like the old Cliff Young. Cliff Young, yeah, yeah Cliff right, Young back right. again. Yeah. yeah, without the without the gumboots. Without the gumboots. Yeah, <laughs> I had a nice pair of Asics on at the time. And, and what do you remember of crossing the line? Do you remember that at all? I remember crossing the line <laughs> yeah. because uh, something happened that I'd never seen in forty years. I get about fifty meters from the finish line, and it was a finish arch that I painted myself. I painted a white with red finish on it. It was the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. I've chucked it out since. Um, I got a bit of bagging about that, so I've chucked it out. And I've seen something happen <laughs> that I hadn't seen in 40 years. My wife running. My wife running. I know she used to be like quite fit in her young days. Right. But I hadn't seen her run for 40 years. Right. And was she running alongside you? She ran out with about 50 metres to go out of, because I had to go through some bushes and into the park. (laughs) She ran out with about 50 metres to go and ran the last 50 metres with me under the finish arch, which is quite appropriate. Her and Lisa were right there running under the finish arch with me. They were the two people that really got me across that line. Uh, my wife, for what she had to put up with for the last year and a half with those early wake-ups and me bumbling around in the dark getting me runners on, and Lisa, for all the, the effort she put in, she went above and beyond her duties uh, as an exercise physiologist with all the work she'd done with me, and it was appropriate that they crossed the line with me. But the thing was, we were about five paces from the line. I looked down at me watch, 42.2 kilometres. We timed it perfectly. I stopped the watch and then my wife ran under the finish chute before me. She ran 50 metres. I just run 42 and she ran under the finish chute before me. Oh, and I, 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 ribbed, I ribbed her about it and she hasn't, she, I've never let her forget it since. But it was, in the end, it was quite appropriate and I collapsed on the ground. The legs just went to jelly and I just collapsed and laid on the ground. I, I literally couldn't get up. How long did it take for you to recover after that? Well, they, they, they brought me a chair over uh, and um, sat me up on a chair. <laughs> so I sat there for about 15 or 20 minutes on the chair and then I thought, oh, no, i got all these people. And then there was like probably 80 to 100 people hanging around, all 1.5 metre nicely spaced, of course, during the COVID lockdown. Did you think you needed to entertain them at that point or well, something? Well, I, I thought, I thought uh, they better not all pile on me otherwise if the police come we're going to get all arrested because you know of COVID so I got up uh, they helped me up off the chair and I couldn't sit there too long anyway otherwise I'd cramp up and stuff like that so I started to wander around the crowd just saying hello to everyone thanking them for being there and stuff like that Uh, but that was never going to last Uh, I lasted about a half an hour doing that and I let the I let the guys pack up the stuff and I went home and uh, we took a big photo of everyone before we left and I went home that, night, that, that, that afternoon. 
This is a really big deal. I, I think this is just one of those things. This it, it's, it's 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 one of those things that stick in your memory that you never forget. It, I mean, I, it's like a, it's like me playing a movie in my mind now. Uh, it, I'll, I'll never I'll never forget. I'll never forget the support. Like you know, there, there was there was eighty to hundred people there, and even more out west. A lot of the Dean team out west were running at the same time to finish, exactly the same time I I supposedly was you know, going to finish. So they were going to cross the line with me, but out in their own LGAs. And they were sending me videos of them passing the line at the same time on the phone. You know, you don't do things like this alone. Like Parkinson's, you don't do it alone. So you're a man who ran a marathon at the age of 60 with 10 years after a Parkinson's, well, eight years after a Parkinson's yeah. diagnosis. Are you now an object of medical curiosity? Do they, do they want to sort of put you down in a lab and cover you with electrodes? And, well, uh, I put... hope not. I hope not. That, it hasn't been suggested. I, I'm, I'm normally up for anything, but I, I think uh, being a lab rat's not uh, – I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I, keep, I keep getting um, – we do benchmark testing every six months in the gym uh, with Lisa and the team at Advanced Rehab, and um, my uh, stats are getting better and better all the time. If, so if, I don't know where, where it's going to end. If you're not a lab rat for Parkinson's research, you might be as a sport, object of sports psychology. I'm really interested in what happened to you on the bridge there where you yeah. thought, I've, oh, I've never run this far. Oh, now I'm hurting. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting process. Yeah. You've had some time to reflect on all this now, on running this marathon. It's not what you thought you'd be doing when you were diagnosed. Mm. Do you have any general thoughts about what Parkinson's has meant to you then or what it's meant? I'm not asking you to say, oh, it's been this gift because I'm sure clearly hasn't. But what you're do you not, You're not this? far off it there, Richard, really. Before Parkinson's, I would never have thought of running a marathon to start off with. Um, before Parkinson's, I would have never thought I'd be sitting in the radio station across from you to start off with. I held a dinner after the marathon, which I, I organised, and we got 165 people there to the dinner, we raised $30,000 on the night for Parkinson's New South Wales. I never thought I'd do that. You also would have known to some degree that there are a lot of people around you that love you. You know, you really know it now, don't you? Yes, I really know, yeah. And that's the whole thing. People with Parkinson's need a team around them. They can get through um, if they've got a team around them, a community around them uh, of people like physios, friends, relatives, um, people shouldn't be, shouldn't be ashamed of putting their hand up and saying, I need help. Don't, they shouldn't be ashamed of that. And that's the message I'm telling people. And that's the message that the Dean team's got to get across. Message received, Dean. Good. I so enjoyed this conversation with you. You're <laughs> one of the most remarkable people I've ever interviewed, I think. Thank you so much, Dean. No problem, Richard. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feibler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.